Well, good morning, church. And uh, welcome to everyone who's online. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we read, let's recap what we've learned so far in the past uh, two weeks. Pastor John explained that in verses uh, 1, Philippians 1 through 11, that Paul began the letter by describing his relationship with the church in Philippi as a partnership in the gospel, which needed to be marked by humility in order for it to thrive. And Paul continues the letter by thanking the saints for their labor in this partnership, as well as praying for them to persevere in the faith for the sake of the gospel and their flourishing. Last week, Ed reminded us that nothing is ever wasted when it's done for God's kingdom. And in verses uh, 12 to 18, Paul speaks about the circumstances regarding his imprisonment and how God was using it to advance the gospel. But imprisonment was not the only obstacle he was facing. There were others who were preaching Christ from, from envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. But Paul still rejoiced since Christ was being proclaimed. Which brings us to, us to today's passage. Please turn with me to uh, Philippians 1, 19 to 26. We'll be starting a few words earlier in, uh, at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will full courage, now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As many of you know, um, I'm an avid researcher for things related to the uh, Army, uh, U.S. Army Special Forces, and I even participated in uh, two Goruk challenges, which is a team event of unknown time and distance with added challenges along the way. The event starts at 10 p.m. and is made up of a welcome party where you do a bunch of grueling drills and exercises while wearing a 30-pound book bag on your back. Then uh, you go wherever and do whatever the cadre tells you to do in the streets of New York City, sometimes carrying logs and other heavy objects until morning comes. They say you have to be crazy to sign up for something like that, let alone pay for it. Before my first challenge, I was probably the least athletic person I knew at the time. I could not run a quarter mile without stopping and being out of breath. 
Even my best friend told me straight up that I wasn't fit enough, so I should just quit while I was ahead. But somehow, I still managed to survive. But even with training, I completed but threw up in the first 10 minutes of my first event and sadly only made it an hour into the second one. That's how hard it was. You really need to be mentally and physically committed to endure the event. Now, after completing my first challenge, I started reading up on the U.S. Army Special Forces, or as they're uh, known as uh, the Green Berets and their history. I purchased books on the subject matter, scoured the internet on everything I could get my hands on, and I spent countless hours watching footage of the selection process and listening to podcasts with Green Berets past and present. I even spent money on clothes that were functional and made for active wear, even though most of my days I'm sitting down coding in front of a computer. <laughs> well, I can go on and on, but I'll spare you the details. And if I were to ask you what I was living for, what would you say? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Now, I want you to think about yourself now. What's the first thing on your mind when you wake up? What has fundamentally changed your life that everything you do revolves around it? What do you sacrifice your sweat and tears for? What kind of pain are you willing to endure to get, to what, to get you what you want? And what is something you can't stop thinking about or even put down? If we followed your bank account transaction history, what would the purchases you bought tell us about yourself? And what's the first thing you run to when you have a spare minute or some downtime? What is at the center of your life? And how far are you willing to go to get to where you want to be? Well, today's passage gives us a glimpse into Paul's mind. And we get to see what motivates so much of his life and his ministry. Paul is sitting here in prison, writing a letter to the Philippians. And he's wondering if he's going to die in custody or be released and set free. And it's very possible that the Roman authorities would execute him, since human life wasn't all that valued in that time. Troublemakers were gotten rid of pretty quickly and easily. So when we read verse 19, it seems like Paul did not know for certain what would happen to him in his immediate future. However, continuing on to verse 20, now read it, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We see here that Paul is certain about one thing, that whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted. This is what he rejoices about when he says, yes, and I will rejoice. See, Paul's greatest joy in life was not whether he made it out of prison alive, but that Christ would be exalted and that the gospel would go forth. Paul knows that even if he is condemned and put to death, he will not be put to shame. Just like Stephen was not put to shame because ultimately the Lord, who is sovereign over all, uh, all of these circumstances, will guide him to one as 
to, as one commentator puts it, eternal vindication. So who was this Paul and what was his drive? Well, Paul was once the enemy of Christ and his followers. Paul, who was Saul, is introduced in the New Testament as the one who kept the clothes of the Jews uh, stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Acts 7.58 says, Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. Now, does anyone know what the significance of this is? Um, I didn't, so I had to look it up. And it seems like cloaks were quite expensive in that time. And they were also quite constricting to the executioners of Stephen. So they would have taken off their cloaks to get a better throwing arm at the stoning Stephen and entrusted Paul with their cloaks until they were finished. But not only that, uh, Paul was also the ringleader of the group. And we see that in Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. But this fire-breathing Saul wasn't finished. There was still blood in the water. The plot continues in the following verses. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Then in verse 3, Paul saw, uh, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul also details in Acts 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So why was Paul so opposed to Christ and his church? Well, Saul was a Jew who grew up in the Pharisaic tradition. His father was a Pharisee. Now, I'm jumping a little ahead of myself. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says of himself, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness on the law, blameless. So Paul was a very devout Jew. He was also an important leader and teacher in the synagogue, who was also very rigid. And he was pharisaical and legalistic. So for Christians to start preaching Christ and how he died to pay the penalty of sin and rose again from the dead for their salvation, it would have been an attack on his religion and utter way of life. Even more so, the church was growing by the thousands, and Saul would have become quite frustrated, having to constantly refute their teachings. So he inevitably became the head of the movement to crush Christianity. And it would seem like this religious extremist would certainly wipe out whatever followers Jesus had. But that was not in Christ's sovereign plan. In Acts 9, 3-6, we hear about the famous Damascus experience. 
I'll read that for you. And now as he went on his way, Paul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus appeared to Saul, and Saul saw the Lord. See, Saul knew exactly what the Christians were preaching, since he spent many hours refuting their message. Think about what Stephen said in Acts 7.56, right before his death. Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And just as he was about to be stoned, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And I'm pretty certain Saul flippantly dismissed those words as he watched Stephen die. But he must have been very frightened as he recounted those words and understood its meaning after encountering Christ on the road to Damascus. The weight of guilt and sin must have been crushing for his soul. His heart must have been broken before the Lord. And instead of crushing Saul, Christ shows him mercy and grace. He forgives Saul. Stephen's prayer had been answered. And Saul became Paul and his life was changed forever. Exalting Christ became Saul's all-consuming thought and drive in life. Some of you now don't know the Lord. And if you were to stand before him today, there would be no defense for you. Because of your sin, you are his enemy by nature and by your conduct. Every sin you've ever committed and will commit will be held against you. And the wages of sin is death. The full wrath of God is what you deserve. But here's the good news. Christ, in his perfect patience, mercy, and scandalous grace, died for sinners like us, so that we, pick, uh, we could be forgiven of our debt and spared from the wrath of God, to be changed into his likeness, and to one day enjoy his presence forever. Now that's Paul's story. And he wrote a testimony of sorts in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, which shows how much he changed. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ was everything for Paul, 
This changed his entire life. Everything else just faded into the background and disappeared. Nothing was more important than being used by Christ. And that is why Paul can say in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And this explains why Paul could have actually been rejoicing in the midst of his circumstances, even while suffering in prison and waiting for either execution or release. For Paul, his deliverance mentioned in verse 19 doesn't refer to a physical deliverance per se, but perseverance in his salvation until that final day. And Paul knew that God would use him to testify to the gospel before his accusers as an important step on his way to that final destination. And it's interesting to note that this perseverance does not take place on his own. Look at verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is what a Christ-knowing people look like. The Philippian church was praying for Paul, and the, and the Spirit was supporting him. It's important to notice that even Paul, the great apostle, even he, he needed the support and prayers of the church so that God would supply him with the sustaining presence of the Spirit so that he would take this step successfully. And this concept is really important for us to focus on, especially in the time of a pandemic. With stay-at-home orders and social distancing, it's all the more important that we don't forget that our spiritual relationship with God is not meant to be pursued individually, but with the power of the Holy Spirit and the intercessory prayers of our brothers and sisters here at Maranatha Grace Church. We need each other. We need to fellowship with one another. And I understand your concerns for safety, but please don't let that stop you from finding creative ways to encourage each other and pray for one another during this time. Let's not forget the one anothering God has called us to while we are socially distancing. And praise God for technology, right? It's, it's part of God's common grace that we have all these things that, that happen. And technology is a gift from God for us Christians to help us help each other get through this time. So let's use it for God's glory. Let's use it to reach out to one another, to find ways to serve one another, to pray for one another, to study the word together, and to encourage one another. And if you're a member at this church, that's what we've covenanted to do. And I want to publicly thank everyone who put the live stream together to serve those that don't feel uh, comfortable uh, meeting in person. So Justin, thank you. Stephen, thank you. John, thank you. Nina, thank you. Ken and Ricky, thank you so much. Now the Philippian church knew Paul needed their prayers. So let's be like the Philippian church and intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters so that they, like Paul mentions in verse 10, may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. And like Paul needed our prayers to witness boldly to the gospel to his accusers, we will need prayer in order to share the gospel with others. 
And not only that, but we should be praying for each other, especially in times of trial, so that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit in abundance, so that we may stand firm and even be strengthened in the faith. I know this to be true in my life. As many of you know, Annie's mom battled with early onset Alzheimer's since early 2011. Two years later, Annie and I got married. And a few years later, her parents moved in with us until the disease finally took her life. She passed away in our apartment last year. And through the years, I saw many things that were hard to see and experienced things that only Annie's father and Annie would understand. It was a really difficult season for me, but I was able to endure many years of it in joy because I believe with no doubt in my mind of your intercessory prayers and the Holy Spirit working in my life. That experience helped me in my sanctification, and I have you and the Holy Spirit to thank. So as Philippians prayed for Paul, and like many of you have prayed for me and my family, we must continue to pray for one another's perseverance in the faith as we rely on the Holy Spirit to sustain us. Another aspect we need to assess is our prayer life. See, our culture highly values how our own needs can be met, and so our prayer life consists of how God can meet our lives more pleasant. It's very self-centered. And when we see families and friends in difficult circumstances, we tend to pray for their immediate deliverance from hardship. But sometimes God uses these hardships for our good and to assist us in our sanctification, which leads to spiritual maturity. So our prayers for others should also include endurance and perseverance through difficult Uh, through difficulty and not just prayers that alleviate their situation because that might not be God's will for them. By only praying for deliverance, we're missing the opportunity for God to use trials for the sanctification of the saints, which, which will bring about his good purposes in them. Which brings us to verse 20. For to me is live, and for to me is Christ, and to die is gain. This should be the model, life model of everyone who knows Christ. For Paul, Christ was everything. He mentions in Galatians 2.20 that he has been crucified with Christ so that Christ lives in him. And Christ meant so much to him that it colored everything that he did. For Paul, knowing Christ meant living his life in such a way as to become a slave to Christ and to preach Christ no matter what circumstances or hardships he's faced. And that's what he means by verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And Paul was able to do that because it was Christ who lived in him and gave him strength to do what Christ called him to do. But it seems like for Paul, there was a tension that he faced. For Paul, dying would have been a better option, because for him, that would mean being with Christ. This is pointed out to us in verse 23. 
I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. See, this verse also shows us that when when Christians die, they don't fall into a soul sleep, but instead will find themselves immediately in the presence of Christ. So let's be encouraged by this. When Stephen was stoned to death, although he was in pain, when his pain ended, he was not sent in a waiting he was not sent into a waiting period or purgatory he was ushered into the magnificent magnificent presence of our lord jesus christ the philippian church will need paul's instruction as we will see the church is currently divided and that is why paul will go on to exhort the church to put the interests of others above their own paul himself models this by desiring to go to the philippian church even though he would, he would much rather die and be where Christ is. Paul's passion in life was to see the gospel advance, and we see it in this first chapter as he speaks about his own circumstances. His absolute devotion to Jesus and the gospel is more important to him than his own body and career. One commentator put it this way, Every major feature of his life at the time when he wrote the letter, his physical comfort, the opinions others have about him, his position with respect to the secular authorities, and the question of whether he lives or dies are molded by his commitment to the advancement of the gospel. Paul expects the Philippians to have the same perspective. Their progress in joy in the faith, he implies in verse 24, should mirror his. Now, what about you? What motivates you? What sucks up all of your energy and dominates your time? What makes you tick? Paul was a gospel-driven person and a model for us. Are you that kind of person? Lastly, I want to bring your attention again to Paul's attitude towards life and death. To him, living was all about the fruitful labor of preaching Christ, and dying was all about union with Christ. But after considering his circumstances, he was resolved that God's will for him was living, so that the gospel would advance. Paul was putting the Philippian church's interest above his own, and the interest of the gospel above all. But looking at Paul's attitude towards life and death, does it mirror your own? Today, as a society, we fear death because it has been sort of sanitized out of our lives. When death occurs, usually it happens in a hospital rather than a home. And then the body is rushed to the morgue where the embalmer quickly preserves the person's appearance. And for Americans, death is the ultimate tragedy, so we expect to live our best life now and do whatever we can to fulfill our own desires and pleasures. However, following the pattern of our culture will only cause us to grip onto our worldly possessions more than let them go and risk our lives in the service of God. I love listening to Ed Lynn's message last Sunday because... It highlighted the many saints who've put their lives in harm's way for the gospel. 
They were wholeheartedly committed to the Lord, and their single devotion was to the gospel in life and in death. And we've lost some of that in our day, possibly because of our culture's value on life over death. But many of our brothers and sisters in the global church experience threats to their life for their commitment to Christ every day. And others are executed for the name of, of Christ. So let's not only pray for their safety, but also pray for their perseverance. So our boasting may abound in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not naive to think that we are safe from persecution as well. Here in America, discrimination against theologically conservative Christians as well as Christianophobia do exist. And this is especially true in academia, where a a theologically conservative Protestant would face discrimination during a job interview. And also, the the culture we live in today puts pressure on the church to abandon its biblical convictions on morality to conform to society's morals. Come what may, we like Paul can be confident that there is nothing that truly threatens the gospel of Christ, nor compromises the promises Jesus has made to the church. Like many of you today, I am convicted of Paul's testimony and example. And that's a good thing. Uh, I believe Paul wrote this inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to exhort us and make us more into the image of Christ. Many things distract me from the gospel mission, as I mentioned earlier um, in the sermon. And it's easy to replace God with good things, and even bad ones too. I've exposed one of my distractions to you today to show you that I'm tempted like you and, and also fail. And, and, and I too am also convicted to repent of my wayward heart. So let's keep praying for each other like Paul prayed earlier in the beginning of chapter 1. Uh, please join with me in prayer. Lord, we ask that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.